Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Molly Carmichael. I'm a principal with Zonda's advisory team leading research on master plans, new neighborhood designs, and product research around the country. Today, it is my pleasure to lead Zonda's inspirational leadership series, joined by some of the smartest people in the real estate industry. I have loved bringing this series to you as it gives me and all of you the opportunity to learn from the industry's best. These leaders and their teams have a huge responsibility. They are literally designing our future, so no pressure. <laughs> so let's get started. Today, we're joined by Graydon Nelson and Michael Maples, and I had the opportunity to do this interview in person at our Builder 100 conference. It was such a pleasure to meet them in person for the interview, and they have a great story. The two started out as college buddies. They started a business together, and today they've built quite a team and quite a home building company. I even love their unique titles for our industry. Instead of CEO or COO, they are the principals and co-founders of Trudemark Homes. And I think that's what I appreciated the most about these two leaders. They are willing to rewrite the rules for what they believe in. And you're going to hear that in their story. So you'll hear about the good, the bad, some of the challenges they face both personally and professionally, and as they grew this company into the success story it is. So a couple of quick facts on the company. Truemark's been around since 1988. They build over 4,000 homes in California. That's like 14,000 homes anywhere else. It's a, it's a really challenging market. Um, and how do they do it? They design really innovative product and density. And that's what I do for a living. I'm constantly studying what translates to not only a better neighborhood, but really better financial performance. And that's kind of what they've done. I think they built some of the best product in the country and they've got several awards to prove it. On that note, it, Michael and Gray were both recently recognized as recipients of our Home Building Foundation's Hall of Fame. Um, but most of all, I think you're gonna find Greg and Michael are both remarkable leaders and human beings. Uh, so let's hear from them. We'll get started. Please welcome Greg and Michael. Well, let's start out first with how did Drewmark form? How did it start? And and I'd love to hear for each of you your home building story. Like, why home building for both of you? Go ahead, Greg. Start it off. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> so Michael and I met and became friends in college. And so we go way back. That's a yeah. long time ago. <laughs> and um, actually, uh, we were both working with sister churches. We were working with high school groups. And we met at a conference hit it off, and then continued to kind of share that experience during college. Both were business majors. And then he was going into vocational ministry. So he was going to be a nice. pastor, a mm -hmm. youth pastor. How and cool is that? Yeah. 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 And so he, to do that, he needed to go to grad school, seminary, right? And we both went to San Jose State, so we just commuted to college. No big thrill. And uh, in true Michael Maples form, he, he says, Greg, I'm going to go back to Minnesota to, to grad school. You should come with me. And I'm thinking, he needed to be rescued, you know. Are you, know? you from Minnesota? or that's No, we, we, we grew Area, up in the, the Bay Area in California. Minnesota is like the last place that California wants to go, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he can be convincing. No, it was, it was, um, it was uh, quite a great experience. And, um, and so you said, why not? <laughs> you know, I don't remember exactly how he talked me into it, but just suffice it to say he was successful. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, no, it was a great experience. 
we lived in a two-bedroom apartment with three other guys, five of us. Nice. And, um, Saved it, money, but it was, it was it, miserable. It, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't totally miserable, but we January was probably a little tough. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. January and February and March and November and December were all pretty, you know, tough. I have a couple weather. hundred relatives in Minnesota. I guess. Oh, you do? Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Yes. See, so it can be a great place, though. Yeah. No, for it sure. was it was awesome. Yeah. It was a great experience. I went for one year, and they kicked me out, and then he stayed for the balance <laughs> yeah. and finished and and got his Masters of Divinity. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. He's he's forgotten apparently everything he learned there. Well, in seminary, <laughs> but. but he's got to be a great guy. I mean, what a, well, that, what well, a say it again, great Molly. I am a, I am a great guy. That is, <laughs> it's well said. Let's emphasize right. that. Yeah. Right. Interview over. Yeah, <laughs> I had that cute. About, I was gonna say yeah. that about you, but you beat me to it. Anyway, so um, now now did yeah. you go back to school as well, and then? Were you just, you know, checking out Minnesota for fun or? Well, because uh, we'd never, I'd ne neither of us had ever gone away to college, never had that experience. That ah. was sort of the impetus. Nice. And I was open to, to staying, but didn't feel sure. the call, so to speak, Sure. Uh, in that direction. And so I came back and I worked in construction with my dad. My dad was a small general contractor in San Jose. Nice. And so um, I worked full time for him and uh, went, I did grad school at night uh, in business oh, and nice. uh, so and then he came back mm -hmm. you want so to take a story from there so yeah. I stayed for four years got my master of divinity and I feel like the Greek I learned has really helped me in my day-to-day -day, <laughs> you know home building business it's one of those I, things you know parsing what? I'm, those I'm verbs. Agreeing, yes <laughs> <laughs> no but it was it was a great experience and I planned to um, work in churches I thought maybe the rest of my life but um, along the way um, my business Part of my education really lit me up. I love that. So even when I was in seminary, there was one copy of the Wall Street Journal that used to be in print. It was at the library, and nobody else read it. So I got a free copy every day, and I'd be in there reading the Wall Street Journal while everybody else was, you know, um, looking at Bonhoeffer, and who is a very good. <laughs> but, but anyway, so I've always had part of that in me. And even when I ran a, a large youth ministry in a, in a local church, I liked the business part. I liked, you know, figuring out the break-even point on trips and sure. all the budgeting part. And I liked the marketing part of trips to high school students. And I really loved, obviously, being involved in that stage of life, just, you know, trying to help them find their way and find a foundation. So it was a very meaningful part. Um, but then along the way, they don't pay you a lot when you're a youth pastor, even if you got a, <laughs> a graduate degree. So then we had. It's a different kind of payment, right? I it's mean, that deferred compensation right, that I'm right. kind of banking on, right? Right, right, right. Uh, no, but so uh, my wife and I have um, been married for 40 something years, but we had uh, four kids in two and a half years. And uh, wow. those kids wanted to eat every single four week. Four kids in two and a half years. Yeah, the last one were twins. Okay. So I was like, help me with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I started to kind of do a little side hustle. I'd, We'd move into a house and I'd try to learn to fix it up. I didn't know what I was doing, so I'd read a Sunset magazine, you know, when things weren't online. And then I'd pull out a window and put one in upside down and fix it. And, but that was kind of a little side hustle and fix up a house and it was flipping before flipping was popular. Um, and we'd sell a house and that'd kind of keep us going for a while. And uh, yeah. So I have to believe getting a master's in divinity had ramifications into your career today. And there were things that you learned there that you know they don't teach you in respectfully business. There are things that you take with you. Share with me if you were to pick like two or three things that like if not four, I would have never been able to do this. Yeah. I think for both Greg and I have this really spiritual part of our life and we, we want our lives to be integrated. We've never separated 
what we do from that part of our life. And so it was always a very integrated experience. And we've always wanted to have our lives be more meaningful than just what we do. I think what it, the biggest part is it helped us understand that our value was never going to be in our self-worth, which was important because we started the business and we were really smart for like 18 months and we went broke. And we realized <laughs> that that didn't measure who we were, just like when things go well, oh, it doesn't measure who you not. are. Of course not. And it gave us a real sense of you still need to have an impact on people you come into contact every day. I think it affects our business culture around the office, that people have human dignity and no matter who they are, they deserve to be respected, whether it's an investor that's coming in or someone that's delivering and dropping off a package. So I think it's affected all of us that way. And even as you look at our people, we want them to have great holistic lives. Um, as much as we love what we do, we love work, we have to work hard to be competitive, but it's not the measure of the soul part of what their life is about. For sure, and, and I, I think people genuinely, in my opinion, I mean, I can feel this already just talking to both of you, there's just something about working for a leader that you truly respect, right? Mm. That you just really look up to and go like, that's who I wanna be. Mm. So what about for you? So you actually go get your master's in business and, and together somehow this all comes together and how did that then come back to home building? Like, well, so uh, yeah, I was uh, working in the construction industry, and um, Michael ended up in, with his family came, moved back to the Bay Area sure. from Minnesota after he was complete with his degree, and uh, had the this leadership position in this large church on the peninsula, and that was part of the reason he's, he's on making a youth pastor's salary in one of the most expensive places you could possibly what, live. What part? What was it? It was in uh, San Mateo. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. the kids yeah. like living in a tent, really. They get used to it. <laughs> it's a little cold some of the year, but it wasn't that bad. Oh, I know. It's California, so you get a jacket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was doing some investing and, you know, like buy a property, fix it up, rent it out, refinance it, whatever. And, and so we would get together about every six weeks, I think, mm -hmm. for breakfast and compare notes, you know, about life, about ministry, about business, about real estate, all those things. I mean, it's been an awesome yeah. friendship that we've Trust had for each other almost 50 years. To the end it's of the so world. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 40 some odd years. So, okay, so, yeah. so I, I'm still connecting these dots. Yes. Yeah. You're a minister, mm -hmm. you're doing construction, and, it, and, it, and, and then this, all of a sudden, one day you're at breakfast and you're like, Mike, I have a plan. <laughs> no, it's great. No. I have a plan. So we, we'd always talked about it would be great to, it'd be great to start a church somewhere that was like youth ministry, where it was very authentic and meaningful to people, deeply spiritual, but wasn't really burdened by some of the other things around kind of organized religion sure. as we'd seen it. And uh, we always talked, well, would it be a great experience someday to, you know, help start a church? And uh, we both met, uh, came across some ideas about the same week. Um, met a guy, he met a guy that was going to move to Pleasanton to start a church. And I was driving back, I forbid to speak an engagement. I was driving through Pleasanton and I pulled to the side of the road and I saw all these rooftops going on. And I thought, well, man, this is a real growth area. And uh, so I, my thing at the time, I was working on some continued ed and divinity stuff and uh, about church growth is it should be a place where a lot of new rooftops are. So sure. I go to call Greg and say, let's, we, let's just quit our jobs and move to Pleasanton and start a church because a lot of rooftops going up. And it was sort of like, you followed me to Minnesota, so you got to be able to do this. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I yeah. have a feeling we're going to do this together. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of a mutual thing. At the same time, yeah. uh, my wife and I were going through a very similar process. And, you know, looking back, there was this, you know, providential, we think, mm -hmm. you know, uh, move that, that sent us that direction. And um, we were uh, decided, basically, that, 
okay, we're going to go do this. And we were young and probably somewhat naive. And yeah. But um, so you started church? Well, no, we didn't start it. There was a pastor that was assigned to start. He was uh, like a church planter, they would call nice. it. But he needed people to help. And sure. so um, we met him, and there, there was some good uh, chemistry there. And so we, you know, with our families, decided, yeah, let's, let's go help out with this thing. But we had to make a living. Sure. And so, because um, for me, I wasn't giving up very much income, mind you. So it wasn't <laughs> like it wasn't like there was going to be a big change in lifestyle that way. And we both had. I was working on a house on the side that I would get ready to flip, and he had some assets, and I had bought another lot. So we kind of so accumulated some craftsmen side things. at the same time, well, and then craftsmen. My wife could do any of the repairs around the house, not me. But <laughs> I, I, I would, yeah. But you know, Made we were to better. Be craftsmen, right? Yeah, right. would appreciate craftsmanship. Um, but so we had a little bit of, you know, money that I was kind of, you know, where we built up that we could take and live on for a year. And so we said, let's quit our jobs for a year. We'll go try to help plant this church and we got to make a living. So let's start a little company and, you know, let's see what happens. And so we started, uh, what was the what beginning of Trumark. Trumark, yeah. 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 So, so, and then that was the start. Tell me about your first project. Uh, well, we had those two lots. Mm -hmm. We each brought a lot into the partnership, basically. Okay. Um, and they were both located uh, down in the South Bay and the peninsula. And um, we ended up selling both of those rather than build uh, the project that we had kind of envisioned. Um, and so that gave us some more capital. And then with that, I think we tied up a, a piece of property. Our first probably project that related to what we do now was a, we bought a, a house with an oversized lot in San Jose. And um, it, it was fitted for a four lot subdivision, basically. And we you know, had never processed an entitlement like that. Um, not even sure if we knew what that word meant Let then. alone Pleasanton, which is no, not No, it easy. was not Pleasanton, San Jose. San Jose. Oh, San Jose. It was San Jose. So we little, were living up time. in Danville. Yeah. Working. I was going to say that's not much easier, but yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Anyways, so, uh, so we, we um, hired an architect to, you know, do the site plan and kind of naively went to the city planning department and said, hey, we'd like to subdivide this property and uh, build four homes there and uh, went through the whole process, had to go to the city council, and <laughs> I still remember, I'm sure you really do, um, that uh, the council members, they kind of make comments about your project and then they take a vote, right? And one by one, they're saying, no, I don't really think this fits the, 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 the neighborhood, and you know, it's kind of like, oh, we're going down, we're <laughs> in flames. And then this one council, council member, I can't remember his name, but he says, well, he says, how about if we propose they do three lots instead of four? And he kind of, he rescued us basically yeah. by proposing this compromise. And the rest of the council goes, okay. And so they, they took the vote. We got three lots approved. And it was like, oh my gosh. But we, we'd learned, <laughs> Our we'd learned the process financial of, futures on the line. we walked the neighborhood, talked to every neighbor, said, what would make a good situation for you here? Sat in people's backyards and looked, well, how about we put bigger fences here? So what actually helped too is we had a diagram of all the neighbors that supported it and all the ones around us supported it. And that made it easy for the council to say yes to because we had some buy-in from people that didn't need to buy in, but they felt like that was a reasonable solution for it. And that was kind of the, the, the became kind of what we did as a company. For a lot of years we did entitlement and land planning and we had the sense that, hey, we're gonna go into somebody's neighborhood. We need to work closely with them. We need to be good listeners. And we need to be willing to change things in a way that we can and find a compromise because we need to get people on our side. 
And, uh, you know, we're going to come and do what we think is a great development, but they're already invested. They live there. Now, it can't be a park. Everybody wants it to be a park. Um, right. but, but what can we find that would be a reasonable solution? Well, and most of those people that live there know the area so well that I'm, I'm sure in that process you learn something, it added to the process, and sure. that really can make, you know, whatever you're building better. Right. Now, you guys do a lot of infill today, mm -hmm. and you do it very well. Or do you still apply that process Yeah, there was a doing? project we had in Walnut Creek. We, when it first kind of hit that we were going to do it, um, there was, I don't know, 358 people against it on a petition, <laughs> oh, and, um, which was not the great start you want. Um, and it required some discretionary approvals, and Walnut Creek in the Northern California is kind of known to be difficult. But our team just, they just relentlessly went after the neighbors. And our thing was, if you keep showing up and nice, people eventually have a reasonable conversation, mm -hmm. which turns out it's not 100% true. It's but it does true. make a difference. But it, it makes a difference. Well, and, and again, I'm going to go back to the, your history in ministry, I think, obviously, has taught you to relate to people and be empathetic. Yeah. And just the fact, I mean, I can tell just by talking to both of you, I mean, that's a really big deal. Yeah. I don't know that people, I think, well, let me say it differently. I think people underestimate how important that is. Yeah. Just the ability to go in, listen, and actually really come back with solutions. And right? try to make real changes if you can. And our team did that, and we got to city council, and it was like a love fest. There were people lined up to speak on behalf of our team. That was a good project. And that and Greg and I weren't involved in that one, but we felt like we've created the culture and the expectation that that's what we do. And it does stem from our sense of if people have dignity and their, their opinions matter even if you don't agree with them. And it's been interesting. Sure. Well, so from, um, I'm gonna say small lot detached done well. And also, so I've seen like the Perch and um, mm -hmm. XL70 and some of the, the different products you've done. Um, Richard Douglas, which is one of your division presidents, yes. was a division president for me too, which I oh, adore him. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just he's a smart, amazing. he's another smart, genuine guy, just like the two of you. And tell me how you guys go through the product development process and really make sure it's special and, and take that density to a level to where it's not, uh, it, you know, it's still profitable, but it lives well. Yeah. and it feels good and you're proud to leave it behind. I mean, I, every person I work with, I say, you know, I want it to be profitable for you, but I also want you to be proud of it mm -hmm. for 500 years because it's yes. going to be there for a very long time. Yep. And what we're saying is ugly lasts a long time, so don't do ugly. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you build something, it really That's does a last a I'm long time. That. Yeah. So I think we really learned that we want to have a great neighborhood and a great neighbor is everything from what you, how you live inside the home, but how you connect with people. So your walkways matter. Um, yeah. you, you know, you travel, you go to New York, and a little tiny pocket park can be a gathering area for a huge area, even if it's surrounded by density. And so our team works hard at creating special moments in the, in the walking pedestrian area, even if it's small. Sure. Um, a lot of times we have little fountains to break up the noise if it's a loud environment, but a place where even neighbors will connect. And that we think there's a human value to that, that, you know, we have to have something about our life that's authentic and meaningful, and we think that's part of what we can bring to the table. And so our team really works hard at that. And our idea is that we can't spend money everywhere, but you need to design things that are thoughtful and do something that surprise people when they walk in the door or when they walk through our communities. And we just have a team that's you know better at that than we are, very creative. Um, Garrett Hines, who's worked with us for years, He's you've mentioned. He's one of my favorites too. He's always full of ideas and he loves what we do and cares deeply about it. And he gets architecture and he, he, does. he just, yeah. those special details, he totally gets it, yeah. right? Well, I want to rewind a little bit 
um, going back to as both of you were growing up, um, <laughs> share with me a little bit about like who were your inspirational people then, and and how did you guys become such great men? I mean, like it's it's I really admire just your whole path and everything that you've just shared. But like, who were your influencers as sort of you were growing up? Well. Um, and kind of going back to the design uh, influence, my mom uh, was always passionate about design. She nice. went to school later mm -hmm. in life in her 50s, went back to, she never finished college, went back and, and did a, a, a community college degree in uh, interior design and had a nice. business. And I remember, because uh, I did these projects, you know, early on uh, investing and we'd talk about floor plans as particularly. And so I, over the years, I kind of picked up on the, you know, what was important about how a space lived, what was important in a kitchen, things like that, that really? she was a big influence. Uh, yeah. And so even to this day, I still kind of like to look at floor plans and, you know. Uh, oh, it's my favorite thing. Yeah, really? Uh -huh. Yeah. Because yeah. you envision how people are going to live there and how, how can you enhance that living experience you know, because it makes a difference how sure. the, the home lays out. And of course there's trends and things like that that you have to consider too, but, um, so she was a big influence, uh, suffice it to say. Uh, and then my dad, as I said, was a general contractor. And so um, I learned a lot from him and, you know, the, the people that he had working for him about construction, which was great, um, provided a good reference point for me. Well, it's great to figure out how it all comes together, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think more important than that was um, he was a man of really high integrity. So nice. his business, he ran his business in a way that people were drawn to because they knew he, they could trust him. So that was, that was really important in my formation, you know, for me to see and observe and try to emulate. Um, but another part of it too was he, one of his famous sayings was, um, you can do anything you want to do you know, if you make up your mind to do it kind of thing. So it was, right. it was this this sort of, hey, go do what you feel passionate you want to do and, and totally. you can do anything kind of thing. And that was his message to the kids. I mean, what a privilege to grow up with that kind of messaging, you know, in, in your family. So that was a huge influence for me too. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's part of what this series is about is mm -hmm. really looking at people who are really scared of, afraid of the CEO and the COO and like I could never be that and it's like no these are human beings just like you and they had you know great mentors or they went down this road or that road and it, it really what you're doing I think is helping not just your team but the future leaders mm -hmm. I think that hopefully want to come into the space what about for you so my my father had a huge influence on me you know we Grew up in a you know blue collar family in Santa Clara, California. Uh, nobody in our family had ever gone to college. So when I went to apply for school. I didn't know you know I I, I heard somewhere that a four year school was better than a two year school, but no orientation. <laughs> no one's telling me to fill out an application. They're yeah. just saying hey, live a good honest life and go do whatever. But my dad was uh, he started off in the union as the, in the um, lithography Print. business, the printing business. But he was just a great leader. So before long, he was brought up into management. It had and he, to be. Eventually, he was a president of a company. Even though he's just all blue collar, you know, he could never figure out a computer, how to turn it on even, but he just was a great leader of people. And I, I watched him, a great servant leader, um, but also, man, if you had a deadline, he would, uh, even when he was president, I'll, I'd go, you know, I'd call him, where's dad? He went in, it's like 10 o'clock at night, he went in to run the press because there's a job that they told someone they would get out tomorrow. 
and he'd physically go there and run the press himself to get it out the next day. So there's that, that part of it. And then I, I just saw him interact with people. He never, um, never raised his voice at people and he never belittled anybody. And that wow. didn't mean he didn't have high standards. It's just, I think sure. that that's affected the way we go about it. We try to tell, you get people to the construction industry, they think the only way you can do anything is you know, yell at each other. And we said, you have to have more you know, arrows <laughs> in your quiver because our culture is not to scream and yell. Our culture is to communicate well and you have to motivate people. But we never thought you did that by belittling people. We don't think that's effective. And I learned a lot of that from my dad. It is very interesting to see the different styles of leaders through this whole process. It's, it's definitely interesting. Now, if we look at things like artificial intelligence and all the things that we've been hearing the last you know, day and a half here at Builder 100, is there, do you really believe we have the opportunity to change home building in a big way in the next 10 years? Or do you think we need to change home building in a big way in the next 10 years? The, the, what's going on with technology right now, it's gonna change so rapidly with artificial intelligence that it both scares me and excites me at the same time, mm. right? And yeah. so I guess the question is, is you know, how much do you integrate that into your practice as you go forward? Well, I think it's gonna affect all kinds of pieces of the business different ways. Um, yeah. One thing about home building, it's still a physical process, but like our Southern California um, branch this year, every home is being built in a panelized factory. All the panels are. Really? And with you know, computerized saws and so forth and delivered to site. And they did a eight unit building in Covina. They stood all the walls in six hours last week. Wow. Um, be what part are your of cycle that. times? Uh, cycle times are amazing, the best in the industry. <laughs> no. Of course they are. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, are. it's pretty typical what everybody else is. But that we figure can cut down you know, three or four days in the framing process. And, our teams are looking at what's the cost of carry um, because we're not finding a lot of relief on some of the cost from some of the subcontractor bases in, in the core areas. So trying to find other ways to you know, lower our costs and, and panelization, shortening the cycle or making it easier for the trades when they get on site is some of the things that will be the solution. That's what I was going to ask. Do you find that your your direct construction costs are higher with panelization, the same or lower? You know, we're, we're still... So we're through that. Analyzing all that this year, that's part of our study. Like, what is the actual bid for bid? Sure. But we definitely think it's going to make it easier for our subcontractors to be there and be effective. Our Southern California team, Richard Douglas, is leading that. Yes. This thing is predictability. Predictability. Sure. So when people come to the site, they can have a chance to make a good wage, the subcontractors, because we're ready for them. So when they get a chance to shave a day off the schedule, they don't necessarily take advantage of that. They sure. try to keep on the schedule so that it kind of rolls through properly. So, but those kind of technological mm -hmm. changes are, are changing it. But we also think for people um, that are younger going into this industry, there's gonna be a place for the physical environment that cannot be replaced. Robotics are gonna help with a lot of things, but there's still gonna be someone putting those homes together. Absolutely. And our parent company, Daiwa House, does they produce homes out of factory, 7,000 I think one year out of uh, factories in Japan. But there's still people on the site that are putting it together and doing the final hookup. And so there's real opportunity for people that way, playing with technology and finding solutions. It, it's staggering because the, the challenge you have with Japan is they don't have nearly the jurisdictional issues that we have here, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's very easy, I think, to do it in a market like Japan and, I, and, and not to by any stretch say that's any less or better, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the challenges I think we have here are just, you know, you could put Irvine and Tustin right next to each other. They have totally different building standards. Yes. Yeah. Standards, right? And so 
Uh, that's where the challenge I think really lies and and why panelization probably is going to be better than modular over time. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, and I think we can we can use technology for certain parts of it. I right. think those that have tried to make it one big integrated process have found it's very difficult to do and you know there's logistical issues and sure. people still want some changes. There's just complications. From a, a livability standpoint, Greg, what do you see as the future opportunity from a design perspective as it relates to home layouts? And do you see them actually getting smaller? Do you see them getting uh, larger? Or I believe when you go back from 1960 to the current, our home sizes have more than doubled in mm -hmm. size, and yet household size has actually shrunk. So are, is that good? I mean, where do you think the future should go and where do you think it will go? Well, I mean, you pointed out the statistic that, that home sizes have definitely increased uh, over the years. So Substantially. There's, there's no, I, I can't think of a reason why that we would go the other direction in that regard. I think people's expectations are such. Um, affordability, though, is an issue. So really the, the reality is we need to continue to have a spectrum of housing options for people. Sure. And uh, that involves both home design and land planning, right? Um, so working with the communities, the cities, to try to um, have the opportunity to develop alternative uh, solutions on sites that offer a wider range of housing for, for people, because not everybody can afford a large home that you know, is designed exactly how they want. So, I just wonder with the change of virtual reality and some of that stuff, if that will allow us to have smaller space and more functionality. And, it really will be interesting, and I, and I don't think mm -hmm. we're anywhere close to that, but there yeah. definitely has to be that mindset, which is kind of what we talked about a little bit today with the concept home is, how do we get 2,500 square feet yeah. to really work and work well when we're continuing to push above that for so many different, you know, whether it's family yeah. or move down or you name it. Mm. Well, Molly, you know? and you're so involved in product. You, you know, you take the same 2,500 square foot home, we're a, 1200 square foot condo, one can feel much larger and one can feel much smaller than the Absolutely. actual square footage. So our team like an SL70 you mentioned in Silver Lake, um, they did a phenomenal job of, of bigger windows and higher plate lines. And we even had a, a, one of the city workers, the city planners came through and, and he walked through one of our plans and our, our people said, what, what size home do you think this is? And he goes, this, this is your 1600 square foot plan, isn't it? And they go, no, this is our 1150 square foot plan. Right. But it just lived large, right? And so that's part of the, we're trying to strive for that so it has a different feel to it. And then we have a program um, in Southern California called um, um, TrueFlex. And it's really about trying to make the home grow and adjust as you grow and adjust. So putting rooms in certain places that can be used multifunctional, putting in even some headers where you could have, there's solid walls now, but they know where they can take that and then put a doorway, pre-electrical for that in case they change the use of it. And so ways that the home can morph to your different lifestyles, because I think people at least are anticipating being in their home longer, whether they do or not, we'll find out. Sure. But that's going in there looking at that. And I think that allows a smaller space to live differently, where right now we've kind of solved every long-term solution by just making the houses bigger. Absolutely. So let me ask you both a question. We're gonna go back and forth between, I'll ask you the first one. Why Trumark for you? Why Trumark, who's asking that question? I'm asking who, you the question. Why who? Trumark for you? You could, you could do any career you want, but why Trumark for you? Why do I work there or why would I buy a Trumark home? Nope. Oh. Why Trumark for you working there and the career okay. that you have? Well, 
boy, there's so many aspects to the answer f for me. Yeah. Um, it goes back from the beginning, a great partnership that we've Fun. had from the beginning. That's a huge Fun every day. Something totally. that's very unique, yeah. I think, in business, you know, to find a partner for, that's when we've gone through some challenging times so together. So that's definitely a part of it. So you have to like who you're working with. We, yes. we do, yep. And uh, be, beyond that, we talked about the, the people, the team that we've been able to be fortunate enough to be part of uh, has been awesome. And so showing up in the office, now that COVID's behind us, Hire um, great people. Yeah, yes, yeah. and uh, working around them day by day is really uh, a great thing. And then we've been very fortunate, Mike mentioned it earlier, to do a variety of products mm. and types of, including commercial and uh, offices, retail, industrial development, um, high-rise condos. Um, one year, just a quick story, we had, the <laughs> it was really interesting, a couple, few years ago, I guess, we had a project in Southern California that was, I forget the city it was in, but it was pretty affordable yeah. home. And I think it was 375,000. Yeah, 375,000 that we sold. And that same month, um, we sold a condominium in San Francisco for 16 million. It was a warm <laughs> so, shell. Yeah, and that was a, wow. a shell, yeah. So they still had so, to put another six or seven million inside to finish. So well, if they wanted a bathroom in the in the condo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Wow, that's like Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah so just that contrast, we, we still laugh about that to this day. And it, it, but it's such an illustration of the wide variety of things that we've been fortunate enough to be part of, and I love that. Both of us really love the variety and uh, the challenges that you have in different contexts. So that would be my. Answer. I love that. So variety people and a great partnership. Yeah. I think that's about as good as it gets. Yeah. Now let me ask you this. Yes. Why Trumar for your customers? Because they're the best homes you can find <laughs> anywhere. <There> you <laughs> no. you know, um, I, I think what our, our mission statement is to enhance the lives of people by creating inspiring living environments, to enhance and inspire. So our idea is whether it's a commercial development or a master plan community or a, a house or home, is how do you do it in a way that inspires the way, inspires people, catches their, their imagination, but also enhances the way they live. And I think our, our team is very thoughtful about that. They know how they're programming a house for what you know, needs of a family. And I think that makes a difference. And I think they have some architectural elements they, the buyers feel like they can't get in other homes necessarily. Well, and in the short time of talking to both of you, I know you mean it. Like, it's, yeah, it's really cool. It's part and, of us. And, you know, and as a marketing person, I hate to say this, but not often does that tagline or that mission mm. really have that kind of meaning, mm. right? And, and it's so cool to see that that really means something to you guys. Yeah, I think thanks. it's great. Thanks. Now, today, aside from your partnership that you guys have together, who are the people that you have sort of today are inspirational leaders and what are the qualities that you see in the leaders that you kind of say, that's how I want to lead. That, that's what I think is great. Mm. Greg, do you want to go first? Oh boy. Well, there, I mean, there's so many examples in our industry and just even coming to a conference like this and, and hearing from some of the leadership in uh, our, you know, leading companies in our peer group um, and to um, hear their talking about vision and, and leadership and people it's it's inspiring and I you know I, I really want to emulate those characteristics in my own role as co-CEO with Michael um, we really want to to be those kinds of leaders that we see up on the stage uh, for, at a conference like this even so 
I really think that we work in the coolest industry on the planet. Mm. Like, really do. Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah. I just think that the there's, it's, yeah. I, mean, I just can't even go off. I mean, I could talk about that for an hour. Yeah. What about for you, Mike? So, um, mm. it, mine's a, um, I serve on the Board of Trustees for Biola University, and um, uh, one of the guys there nice. is uh, um, Dwight Hanger. He came out of uh, Ernst & Young um, Consulting, but he's probably, I think, 80 or 81 now. But I look at his life, he's a guy that's living life well. He still takes time to travel and do stuff, but he also does meaningful things. He's a great contributor um, on a board of trustees because he's very, very bright and he can cut to the, you know, the, the, the core of what the issue is. And I feel like he's just invested that later stage of his life in a very meaningful way. I look at how he interacts with his grandkids and he's just, so as, as I look at our business stuff, we always have goals. We plan to go for another 50 years together. But I just look <laughs> at, there's that. a guy who's always found a meaningful way to, um, to deal with his life. And that's one of my late, latest heroes. How do you make time for like the meaningful stuff and then get the job done? Like, like if I'm guilty of anything, it's probably working too hard. Mm -hmm. Like I really struggle but strive for work-life balance. How do you guys do it? Well, it's not a problem for us because we're just good at those things. <laughs> so I just well, finished. I'm I, just that good. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Molly. Just come and sit at our feet. Uh, I, I, I recently read a book. Once a, once a year, I do take a, uh, a week. Uh, we go to Hawaii, my wife and I, and I just read and I think. And I, I only journal once a year. And I journal about life and look back what I journaled the year before. And it's a very reflective time for me. But this year, I read the, um, the, the uh, endless Re the Relentless Pursuit of the Unhurried. And I read oh. it in record time. So I, I'm the, of course you it is the opposite of who I am, right? Uh, so yeah. for me, it's been very hard to slow down like you. And we, Greg and I don't model always the best work ethic for our, our teams because he and I will be texting and emailing at night. But it's just the way we're wired. So, I, and you can't, right, right. you gotta find your own lane. Um, I guess for me though, uh, I, I love my kids and grandkids and. I love certain, you know, um, hobbies, so I, I'm pretty strategic about making time for that. What could be better, right? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. The best. That's yeah. fun. Well, I, you, I, you know, I think it, it goes back to kind of our foundation uh, in terms of how we evaluate what's important in life. Sure. And so as much as we love business and we love what we do, we've always known that that can't be, as Michael talked about earlier, that can't be where you find your meaning in life because it's gonna let you down eventually, some sure. way or another. And we've had plenty of failures along the way that have reminded us of that fact. So um, I think from early stages, we knew that, that family had to come first, our faith and our, you know, our activity surrounding that was more important. And um, so we don't always get the balance right, that's for sure. But I think that the values, the, the priorities of the values have helped align our activities through the years, so. Were there, were there any times um, in your path that you were like, God, it was when we did this, it made a difference? Like, that's it, when we knew we made it, or that thing we did, that's what, that's what turned the corner for us. I think for us, it's times we took risks on deals that we had. Well, first of all, you have to understand, we went broke, uh, you know, um, after the, the first way, yeah. couple years. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's nothing quite like going home to a soccer game when your house has got a notice in the front door and your kids, five-year-old, said, what's that? And you realize that's the foreclosure notice yeah. that you're in the process. Like, oh gosh, what yeah. are we gonna do? And, and uh, you know, so there's those things. But I think sure. coming out of that, And what you know, did you do when that happened? Um, you know, we just, 
called my parents said, do you think we can move in with you? <laughs> and we, we think we're, we're, yeah. we're working on a couple deals. And I say, we're, we didn't take the tra traditional path. We're very undercapitalized. You know, we were just out there trying to do it. The market sure. turned in that period and uh, it was what it was. And um, we'd sold a house to a baseball player who went bankrupt with the, we had a large second on the, his property and we never got paid for that. So anyway, all but of that. But you forged forward. What's that? But yeah, you, you do, forward. yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, and we have great investor partners that came out of that because we operated with integrity during that. Totally. And it made a big difference. But, um, but coming out of that, we had to take risks. We, we'd never lived on credit cards, but we had to put deposits for deals on credit cards with no <laughs> idea how we'd close these properties. And we just put our, we just strap <laughs> yeah. on them. Our, awesome. our saying was you strap on your Adidas and you start running. And you just That's go awesome. meet with anybody and everybody and tell them why it was a good deal and why your plan would be good. But we did that quite a few times, kind of rebuilding the business, where it's like, well, you know, it's non-refundable for this amount of days, and you know, <laughs> take the money off this credit card and put it on that credit card, and yep. that, which is not the way we ever lived our lives right. until that point. Yeah, yep. right. But, but those risks paid off. But you got to take those risks sometimes, yeah. and whew, yeah. you made it. Well, I think when we, um, as we were trying to work our way out of that downturn in the early 90s, sure, um, we were still trying to operate the business, as Michael just said. We you I know, remember that downturn. tied up yeah. tied up some deals and you know on credit cards um, and <laughs> we uh, I always that. always looked at how could we add value to property yeah yep. um, which is really important and, and possible in California um, so we uh, got a deal approved let's say and uh, we at that time much like this last downturn it was really difficult to get any kind of financing so and sure. Um, our finances weren't in the best shape then either, but um, no bankruptcies <laughs> or anything, but yeah. Uh, yeah. not a lot of money. And, um, and super understanding wives, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't even care. I mean, just they, they didn't phase them. That's you, awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were really blessed to. to but we're, we're yeah. great guys, too, so you have to understand. Right. Right. It was, it was right. a pretty. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. sometimes you just have to have faith. I mean, honestly, yeah. you genuinely have to have faith that it's yeah. going to be fine. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. So that's what matters. So, somebody. A build, another builder came along and made us an offer uh, for for our property that was in, exceeded what we were paying for the property, right? So there was a spread there. And right. so we looked at each other and realized we had bills to pay and said, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Let's take it and run. Yeah, so that, that happened once and then it happened again and it happened again. And so during the late 90s and the early 2000s, that was really a, a niche for us. We, we actually weren't building. That was a building. great time. Yeah, yeah and, and so we really uh, found our, ourselves fitting a niche of adding value to properties and then selling them to other builders. Genius. <laughs> so I think yeah. too, it was kind of that from that very first three lot subdivision, we began to realize the value in California is in the entitlements in the land. Totally. And, and the, the, and the house, today. you can make your yeah. margin, but that's where the real money is. Right. And even as home builders, we always look at entitling land and creating extra margin that way because we really believe that's an important part of the process in these constrained markets. And we feel like we were well suited for that problem solving, kind of deal making with people, listening well. Um, and we go to city council, make a big deal about mm. taking notes because so, in the early days, Good. he and I made the presentations, right? And write down everything they said and, and, and come back the next time and say, here's how we, hey, we know we couldn't do this, but we could do this, this, and this, and build credibility that way. And That's we just smart. realized the value was in the land. But what happened, we kept selling it to other builders and felt like, man, they're, they could have done a better, better job on the product. And when you don't control that part of it, they decide to strip the house down or they decide it's, you can do 
you know, eight foot plates, or let's try six foot plates. I mean, you know, I know. it can be it brutal. Just, it is. Like, yeah. And we felt like we were giving up the extra margin you can get by designing great product. And we really wanted to get back in home building, but our thought was you, you can't get into home building unless it's a downturn. So in 2000, 2000 we interviewed some guys and, and women and started, thought about starting it, and they lowered interest rates and the market took off, so we shelved it. And then in 08, we decided, okay, this is a time for to start a home building company. And luckily, you know, we Boy, had some bright capital. Kind of been better, right? Yeah. I mean, that was really good. And we learned lessons in our other downturn about sure. how you structure land deals. And so in 06, we started dropping our options and taking million dollar losses here and million dollar losses there and kept telling our team, we have to liquidate this and we have to layer in new opportunities because the market's changed. But as it did, then we said, let's go out and try to start home building. And we hired some people and, and it's been really fun to do the home building side because you bring it to fruition and the, the right. ideas you have actually, you get to see it happen and it's, we always tell our people, you know, you're gonna be driving by these neighborhoods with your kids and your grandkids and you're gonna be able to drive by and say, look what we've done, you know, like okay, you with Irvine Company, oh. those are neighborhoods that are still amazing decades later. Well, I, I could talk I to know. you guys Thank for you. 10 hours and I really enjoyed this. Thank, Thank you very much. So much. We'll do some edits. I We've learned a lot from you watching all of your stuff on product <laughs> and our, our teams have gone to your seminars and listened oh, to your podcast. So cool. no, I they love do. that. They I do. love that. They definitely I love do. It. Well, I, yeah, I just, you have a lot of people that I think are pretty great. Thank you again for joining us. This is Molly Carmichael and I hope you enjoyed this series. Please hit like if you like today's broadcast and subscribe if you'd like to hear more from the best and the brightest in our industry. Take care, everyone, and I hope you join us again next time.